Welcome to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. On this episode of the podcast, I interview Chris in Tennessee, a.k.a. Deus Ex Moniker. He provides his take on history and the significance of the Mount Tambora volcanic eruption. Solidarity forever! Thank you for having me on. What, uh, how did Deus Ex Moniker, how'd that come about? Uh, okay, so Deus Ex Machina is a phrase that means ghost of the machine. And Moniker, that's just your name. So basically that's my way of saying I don't want to say who I am on Twitter. <laughs> Who's the ghost in the machine? Uh, that's me, the ghost of the machine, right? Who's running it, though? Who's who? So, uh, I, you know, you have body, you know, your legs, your arms, uh, you know, your head, but there's the, there's something running that body, isn't there? Is there, is there a ghost in the machine? Do you believe in the mind body problem? Uh, I don't know. It's not really anything I ever contemplated. I was just being clever on Twitter, honestly. Uh, it was just my way of, uh, not identifying myself without really identifying myself on, on social media. What do you think about free will? Is this all predetermined? Uh, are we a brain in? Uh, are you a brain in the vat? And I'm just a mad scientist. Uh, are we in a simulation? What is reality? I think a lot of things were are chosen for us, but uh, I, I mean, we live in a deterministic universe, right? So, if you had a computer big enough, you could predict every single thing that ever happened. I disagree. Think so, huh? I do. I don't um, think it's random. Uh, yeah. I don't think it's predetermined. I think it's something different that maybe we quite don't quite understand or maybe could never comprehend. But I don't think it's possible for anyone being to know everything about everything in the universe. We'll never know. Uh, the math of the deterministic computer is, you know, the computer would need to be bigger than the universe. Yeah, more- I've heard that before. I don't even know if I buy that. these theories. I mean, these... Physicists, they claim to know what they're talking about, and they have these complex formulas, but sometimes I'm a little skeptical. It might just be nonsense. Who knows? I mean, I think it's just a way of saying we'll never know, right? You yeah. Something that's so complicated, we can never test it, and that's the same thing. So, Are you religious? Uh, not religious at all. Because you're from, you're from the Bible Belt, right? You're down there in Tennessee? I am. I am. I think probably that's why I'm not religious. Uh, I was raised in a Baptist household. And okay. I attended church a lot as a kid, but not not religious. Probably will never will be religious again. What do you think? What is God? Is that what does God mean to you? Hmm, that's a tough one. Uh, okay, so you know you're made up of lots and lots of complex elements, right? 
uh, that come from all over the universe. A lot of them born in supernovas. So you have lots of stuff in your body that's just stardust, right? So, and you're conscious, right? We have consciousness. So I think so. Yeah, I think so. So in a roundabout way, you are the universe becoming conscious of itself. I mean, the fact that you can look up in the sky and ponder all that, you are you are the brain of the universe, more or less, as far as we know. So, Do you think the universe was created? Was it uh, divine intervention? Uh, was it made and formed in the Big Bang? Did it come into existence randomly? How did we get here? Uh, you know, you're hitting on some things I'm personally interested in. Uh, okay, so... I don't, I don't, it's hard to say. I don't think we'll ever know. I think it's the bottom line. I honestly don't think we'll ever know. Uh, I mean, there could be a a creator, but from inside the creation, how will you ever know that? So you kind of were raised in a church growing up. What, what changed for you? My gosh. Yeah, I definitely was raised in the church. hundred percent. My mother's a Methodist. My dad's family is Baptist, so it was like, you know, you can just get get a lot of choice, basically. There wasn't a lot of choice. But Methodists like to eat better food at church. What changed for you, though? What what caused your, uh, you know, what, what caused you to question the faith? I guess I like science and math, and I'm just not sure there's a lot of room for uh, intelligent design in science and math. I also studied evolution a lot. And if you, if you have like the timeline of it, there isn't a lot of guided hand there. It's just a lot of random things happen. We develop crabs developed like six different times. Right. I mean, so, uh, I know yeah, a lot so- of trial and error. It seems like a lot of trial and error. A lot of, uh, there's a know, lot of silly things that, are, that, came into existence that, you know, have a lot of problems. For example, human beings and our spines and we're predetermined for back pain. Almost everyone uh, has back pain. I had a pain neuroscientist on not too long ago. Um, Yeah, just our spines are not designed the best way. And over time, you know, they tend to break down. And, you know, I think one in two people, you know, in the last year or so had a bout of chronic lower back pain. So I think if we were to design human beings, we would make something a lot better than the spine we have. Uh, I definitely could use a couple extra hands. (laughs) Yeah, I would dig that. I want some wings. I'd like to fly. I'm not so sure. Well, yeah, probably I'd. Try a little flying, you know. Uh, that would be nice, I think. Yeah, it'd be it'd cut down on emissions and CO2 if we could all fly. Gills, honestly, I think there's so much water on the planet, I would much rather have gills. Oh, okay. What do you think about the climate crisis? Let's talk about the political scene in, um, you know, in the Deep South. That's where you've lived most of your life, is that right? Uh, that's where I live. Okay, so I'll tell you what people ignore here. So obviously where I live, you know, people just completely don't believe in climate change. But I'll tell you what they have to deal with every day that is an effect of climate change. And everyone just kind of accepts it without really trying to figure out the explanation for it. So I don't know if you know about armadillos, but they're not native to my state in Tennessee. Uh, Armadillos don't hibernate. So when I was a kid, we had snow here every year, no armadillos. Now armadillos can live here because there is no wintertime, so... 
you every, I, I probably know six people in the last two years that have an insurance claim because of their, because of hitting an armadillo on the road. They just oh, wow. use blades to migrate. Yeah. So coyotes are the same way. We didn't used to have giant packs of coyotes here. Uh, they came out from the lower Midwest. You know, they can live here now. So I'm in South Texas. I see both of those things, armadillos and coyotes all the time. Exactly what I'm talking about. Okay, so you know all about the armadillo interstate, you know, combination. It's just not a good thing. And, What's the uh, deal with um, people on the right, so-called conservatives, and their, um, their, I guess, denial of climate um, change and just science generally? Why the pushback from, you know, seemingly the right? It seems mostly from the right. It seems like, you know leftists for the most part embrace and accept science it's not perfect but it's the best tool i think we have to understand the universe why is there so much anti-science and you know denial of climate change and you know that, that sort of thing from the right why do we see that work i so i work with a lot of right-wingers right uh and 96 like percent of climate scientists are in agreement you're not going to get 96 percent of the people to agree on almost anything you know what i mean Right, right. Okay, so I work with a lot of right-wingers, and I think there has been a change in the way they think over the last few years. So a few years ago, you would have heard maybe like, uh, oh, climate change is fake, it's all designed to control you, blah, blah, blah. Now it's more like, the planet's always changing, it's always changed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there has been some... I mean, honestly, you live here. They're, yeah, their they're, they're understanding of the client science is evolving <laughs> as we speak. It's changing. Uh, there's still denial that we can do anything about it. Like, for example, I think part of the right are just like, yeah, it's, it's changing. Maybe we had something to do with it. Maybe we didn't. But, hey, let's all uh, fill up our SUVs with gas and enjoy the ride until it all ends or something like that. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, you probably understand where I live is particularly bad about trucks, just like where you live, I'm sure. Vanity trucks. This is insane. The, the, the ginormous trucks down here. Like all, all these people going off roading, or what's? I don't understand the point. I don't actually think so because here all their trucks are super nice, and it's like yeah. a guy owns a Mercedes and he takes care of it. Same thing with the truck, right? Guy owns a truck. Yeah. Never dirty. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's uh, it's it's almost a vanity thing. It's it's gotten really out of control, and I think honestly, since I didn't really notice it in the early 2000s, like in the Bush administration, but after the Obama presidency, it seems like it just really kind of exploded. How would, uh, you, how would you describe yourself politically? Uh, I'm definitely a left-winger. I would say, um, I would say I'm a communist. A so communist? Definitely would say that, yeah. Definitely believe in uh, collectivism. What do you think about the Soviet Union? Uh... It was a very violent, brutal state. I certainly wouldn't want to live under that government communism in practice, at least the, the Soviet well, Union definition of it. I get into Marxists all the time. I'm an anarchist, so I oppose pretty much all forms of government, including communism with the centralized state, at least that we saw in the Soviet Union, and I think as we kind of see now in China. I oppose those types of authoritarian, centralized forms of power. I think, uh, okay, so... The Soviet Union was definitely uh, influenced by the uh, Eastern Europeans, um, Greece, Spain, a lot of those states, even though they were papal states, they were 
they embraced liberal democracy kind of during the uh, Renaissance, right? But then during the Renaissance, you had Russia, Prussia, and Austria kind of move to the right, become right reactionary. And so, of course, we know how World War II worked out, right? You had the Russians and the Germans really duking it out uh, in that part of the continent. And I think... What I didn't talk about, though, is Spain, the Spanish anarchist revolution. The fascists came together and crushed it along with the, the liberal democracies. And I think um, the communists were not in favor of that either. Uh, I would say at the end of this podcast, no gods, no masters. That's scary for the people in power, no matter what your belief system are. People that think they can govern themselves. That's scary for anyone with power and privilege. So I'm all about the Spanish Revolution, the anarchist revolution, and anarcho-syndicalism. I don't care too much of how or why the Soviet Union and the power systems within it were formed. But if I was uh, living in the Soviet Union today, I'd try to dismantle it and get rid of it and push back and resist because I don't want bureaucrats, the commissar class, ruling over me in this, you know, what Bakunin called the red bureaucracy. I don't think that it's all, much, all that much different than fascism or even, you know, the capitalist democracies where we have this hyper-powerful state with the, you know, the most violent military in the history of the world in terms of the United States and, and you know, what our ability is to cause you know, violence throughout the world, and we do. Um, and, you know, we, we, we essentially have a government for the rich, by the rich, where the corporations own the government. We're more so, I guess, more in an oligarchy than we are a democracy, but it's a highly powerful authoritarian state, especially um, maybe the ability of the United States to um, use violence against the citizens are limited, but it's not zero. There's all kinds of police brutality in the United States and thousands of deaths each year. Um, but more so how we attack other countries uh, and our ability to, you know, invade, you know, and, and have invaded, you know, Afghanistan, uh, uh, Iraq, um, you know, Vietnam, countries all over the world. So, yeah, I mean, we have a highly powerful government, too, uh, much all that not all that much different than the Soviet Union, other than the where power was is a little bit different. In, in the Soviet Union, you had this kind of, um, you know, commissar class of, you know, government bureaucrats, essentially, essentially uh, powerful, you know, state um, divided up and basically a class of people, the, the commissars were above everyone else. In the United States, it's a little bit different. Um, you know, the government's bought and paid for by the ruling class, which is the rich and powerful people who own the corporations and the money. But I, I, I all I see that between our government and the, and, and the Soviet Union government is we're power lies. In, in our country, it's the business class. In the Soviet Union, it's the commissar class. But, you know, pretty much how it um, functioned was, was not all that much different. Uh, and I think, you know, I think certainly we have more freedoms here, at least in the United States today, than the people did in the Soviet Union. Um, but, you know, I think there's a lot of similarities, too, between these two forms of government. I would say the lobbyist class and the Washington bureaucrat class are the commissar class. They are, sure. Uh, I think, and we'll get into this when we talk about history a little later, but uh, I think a lot of that top-down kind of reactionary politics came from the Russian, Russian, Austrian move to the right after the Renaissance, basically. And we'll talk about the famines that occurred. Let's get into it. We don't have to beat around the bush. Let's get into it. You have a theory of history. Tell us uh, about it. Okay, so uh, we talked about it in the preface a little bit, but uh, 
Uh, tonight, I want to talk about the eruption of Mount Tambora and how that really changed the, the globe. And you still live in the, you know, in the, I guess, the after effects of Mount Tambora's eruption in 1815. And uh, it was the craziest event ever happened in modern human civilization. And we're, you know, we still struggle with it today. And uh, I think what makes it unique or what makes it opening with climate change is good because this was a climate change event basically for the globe. A so, natural, natural one. A hundred percent. So in 1812, no one even knew that Mount Tambora was a, uh, was a volcano. This was a 14,000 foot mountain. So almost the size of Mount Everest, really big. right? And uh, it's on the island of. Uh, Indonesia, I guess here, I'm looking at it on Wikipedia right now. And the island is called Samawa. Okay. So at the time, that was the Dutch East Indies. And just to give you a little bit of context, you had the Napoleonic Wars at this time, right? Mm-hmm. So Napoleon was the emperor of France, and he was making basically his last play uh, in the year 1815 when the eruption occurred. So, um, okay. So let me start with the volcanic explosive, explosive, explosivity index. That's let, me, let me just question you here. Where where did you get all this information? Have you been studying it for a while? What got you interested in this stuff? I definitely have studied this quite a while. So um, there's a lot of YouTube videos you can look up about this, and they all kind of mainstream and talk about the same things, like uh, the price of oats uh, exploded times seven, right? So 700% increase in oats all over the world. Uh, after the Renaissance, you got to kind of think about Europe, was a very, honestly, a really gentle place for a while. And not only that, but common people were able to amass a good little piece of personal wealth. So everyone had a horse, right? That was a big was, deal. Was this the precursor to, wasn't there like a mini ice age? Is this, is this that same time period? I mean, this, yeah, 100%. There was, an ex, there was a volcanic explosion in, I think, 1809. And that explosion was about 10 times smaller than, I think that was... Uh, about 10 times smaller than Tambora. So that was a VEI 6. So that's like the VEI essentially is a Richter scale. So in 1809, you had a Richter scale explosion 6 volcanic eruption, and it shot a ton of sulfur into the air. So we already had a blanket of sulfur in the atmosphere that cooled the planet in that decade. And then Tambora really set things off. Uh, The top mile of that volcano exploded in 1815. So that's enough topsoil to equal all the topsoil in Indiana and Texas, basically all going into the atmosphere in the span of a few days. So pretty crazy. Killed 90,000 people outright. Uh, there was a mini tsunami, which washed all over Indonesia. It even hit the mainland of China and uh, basically all of the islands in the uh, surrounding Indonesia were completely wiped out. Um, that killed another probably million people because after the tsunamis, you had a lot of stagnant water sitting everywhere and that bred a lot of germs. So there was a lot of typhus and cholera in the island nations in the, in the East Indies at that time and basically wiped out the entire population. Uh, the entire population of the island of Samawa died instantly. Everybody within 20 kilometers died in probably a minute, right? So the ash was so heavy when it rolled out of the volcano Instead of shooting straight up into the air, it just spread out in every direction. 
And uh, so you had this guy who was in Java, in Java, right? His name was Stanford Raffles. He was the governor of Java. And he had recently taken over Java. You know, I told you this happened in the context of the Napoleonic Wars. So the British were trying to scrabble and grab every colony they grabbed from the French. This is the height of the uh, the British Empire, I think, right? It really was. Yeah, it really was. And uh, they... So you have Governor Stanford Raffles, who was sitting in the island of Java, 780 miles away from from Indonesia. And all of a sudden, he hears what he thinks is cannon fire from 800 miles away, right? They didn't really have a context for how to explain what they were hearing. So this guy put together a fleet, a war fleet, and they sailed to Indonesia, basically searching for the battle. They thought there was a war going, right? You know, there wasn't a lot of communication at that time. Uh, especially not fast communication. So people just assumed Napoleon must have a fleet out here in the Pacific, or maybe the Dutch have a fleet. So we need to defeat this fleet. So this is a little bit before American online, right? America online. Is this just before that? A hundred percent. Really even before telegraph. So months or years to get information across the globe, 7,000 miles away. So this guy just assumed that there was a battle happening in Indonesia and so he sailed a fleet in looking for it. And what they found was hell. I mean, what they found was hell. Uh, all of all of the island of Samoa was covered in a knee-deep layer of ash. They found people burned to stone. I mean, calcified, right? And uh, that nothing was alive. Everything on the island of Samoa was, was completely dead. Uh, As, and, I think you talked a little bit about the volcano scale or something along those lines. Is this one of the bigger... Uh, volcanic explosions in modern history or recent history? To kind of give you an example, like St. Helens in 80, that was a VEI-5 volcano, so a Richter scale 5 volcano. Uh, Pinatubo, which was the next biggest, was a Richter scale 6. Uh, Krakatoa was a Richter scale 6, right? And that happened in 1883. Um, Tambora is the only Richter scale 7 volcano to ever erupt in modern history. So... To get anything bigger than Tambora, you'd have to go back 25,000 years ago to, to New Zealand, right? So, so with written records, right? And these were like kind of early written records, but with written record, this was the first one that really ever changed things for everybody. And there was enough documentation about it to really understand the effects today. And I think we're really still understanding the effects today. Uh, this is right around the time of the Industrial Revolution and... Um... I guess, you know, modern capitalism uh, in its, you know, current form is it was kind of coming together at this time, wasn't it? A hundred percent. So in Europe, you had, of course, the Dutch and the French and the British who were the main. They were pushing colonies all over the Pacific. Yeah, this is peak European imperialism, I think, you know, the 1800s, it seems like. It was peak European imperialism. Uh and all of a sudden, the mainland, mainland Europe, went completely cold for 10 years. So you couldn't grow crops. You couldn't bring in any food. There was no summer, right? Uh, this was the year without a summer. Is that uh, right? The summer, yeah. People thought the world was going to end, and that is a real thing. People really thought the world was ending. Uh, you, astronomy, after the re- Renaissance, got big, so people were staring at the sun and all of the planets and stars with, as good as they could with telescopes and you had this uh astronomer in italy and this guy was staring at the sun and 
he was trying to do whatever science people did back in the day. Uh, he was looking in particular at sunspots and he had decided incorrectly that the sun basically was about to burn out. So he made this, he made this prediction that the sun would burn out the next few years. And it was called the Bologna prophecy. And then of course, the entire earth was covered in volcanic winter for 10 years. So people thought that was right. I mean, the whole world went completely insane, but all of Europe, like, I think that's a big takeaway is this really the start of modern history, right? All of the European people went kind of were gripped by fanaticism, right? So uh, that eruption really ended all of the, the good things that happened during the Renaissance uh, the, the eruption of Tambora, the famines that ensued, really kind of drove home right-wing reactionary politics. So when you were talking about the Soviet Union, that is what Russia, Prussia, and Austria are, are three main places where right-wing reactionary politicians were able to just completely take over, right? There was no food being grown. It was all seize things by the sword. Right. And I mean, for, in the yeah, time, the right, the right typically take advantage of fear. For example, 9 11, uh, you know, the, the population was uh, in fear, um, and that gave way for the Patriot Act and the 20 years of war on terror in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, those things might have not been possible without a, um, you know, a population that was stirred up. And of course, we're seeing right now the the current um, situation in Israel, um, you know, there was the Hamas attack, uh, you know, killing um, thousands of innocent Israelis. And um, as I talked last night with Pat TDS, both of us were like, you know, this is going to be bad. You know, of course, Hamas does not speak for, um, you know, everyone in Palestine. It's a, you know, kind of the right wing reactionary violent element uh, of, of what's going on there. Um, but, you know, we kind of both saw and knew that, yeah, um, you know, this, this violent terrorist attack is, is bad. But the reaction from Israel and probably from the American ally of Israel, the United States, um, you know, it's going to be even worse. And essentially we're watching genocide and mass slaughter taking place right now, carpet bombing and basically turning this city to rubble. Uh, but yeah, typically that is uh, the recipe for right-wing reactionary power centers within society. They uh, weaponize fear uh, to carry out their agenda. A hundred percent. And you, we were just talking about Israel. You know, one of the things that really that happened after the Renaissance was the Jews were kind of able to move out of the ghettos and the papal states and were kind of normalized in society, right? So it was okay for them to be, you know, they were, they became less marginalized right up until this eruption occurred. Essentially, when the right-wing reactionary politics of the time period really took over, this drove the Jews right back into the ghettos, you know, so... I don't have a lot of love for Zionism, but there is... A lot of historical precedents for why they are the way they are, right? So, yeah, I, I oppose a, I oppose a, 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 a religious state, you know, a state where one group of people, uh, apartheid state, a group of uh, a state where one group of people are above the others. I, I, um, I support democracy 
and religious tolerance. I think the international consensus is a two-state settlement. Uh, you could have Israel and Palestine, and then ideally the long term would be a one-state settlement where we have uh, a region of or a state. I mean, long term for me, I want these uh, these arbitrary governments and these arbitrary borders to just dissolve. You know, but I, I, I think long term, what I would like would be like a one-state settlement where um, you know Christians. Muslims, Jews could all live together in a democratic society, not a religious state, not a Jewish state, not a Christian state, not a Muslim state. I oppose Hamas as well. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I just, do, I, I'm not, yeah, I'm very, I don't know, I guess the terms have changed. I think Zionism used to be, you know, more of like a, a, uh, a place where, you know, people could live together peacefully. Uh, now it's just, you know, this, I guess this religious, <laughs> you know, this religious Jewish state where, um, you know, Jewish people have rights above everyone else. And if you are Arab or Muslim or whatever, you are marginalized. And, you know, uh, essentially, and I've talked about it last night with Pat TDS, Chomsky has talked about it, to, to call Israel an apartheid state is a gift to Israel. It's much worse than apartheid because in apartheid, South African apartheid, um, the blacks, you know, they were the, they were the workers and they were exploited, but they were, you know, providing a service role for the ruling class, the white people, you know, essentially, uh, in, uh, Palestine, they, they are not, they are completely, they're there and they're not wanted. Um, they're trying desperately, uh, you know, Israel to get rid of them, whether it's putting them in prison, whether it's, you know, destroying the cities and causing them to become refugees and, and, and leave, or whether it's just outright killing them, but they are, um, completely, marginalized they are completely um superfluous they don't they are not wanted there uh so it's 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 much worse it's much more violent than you know apartheid south africa and uh, yeah i think it's completely okay and realistic and reasonable i guess to offer a critique of israel and their government and you know the just the violence that they are um take that that they're you know taking out on the innocent people in gaza in Palestine, it's completely okay to be critical of Israel and to also not be anti-Semitic. Uh, and I think it's you know also possible to critique um, the actions of the U.S. government, the American government, without being uh, anti-American or anti-Christian. You know, I mean, we're uh, making a critique of power centers. Chomsky has mentioned this before. Uh, he's a philosopher. He is Jewish, and he is um, also very critical of Israel. He's written many books on the uh, Israeli and Palestinian conflict to call it a war would be disingenuous. It's not a war. It's very one-sided. Israel is carrying out the vast majority of violence uh, in this one-sided conflict, mostly one-sided. Sometimes, you know, the Palestinians, um, you know, strike back and cause violence. And, you know, of course, I don't support that either. Uh, I do not ever support uh, innocent citizens dying um, or being killed or targeted. Uh, but he, he says, um, Chomsky that uh, what Israel does is, if, if you critique Israel and you are not Jewish, you're called an anti-Semite. And if someone uh, critiques Israel that is Jewish, then they call someone like Chomsky a self-hating Jew. And what that does is essentially get rid of 100% of the criticism. So that's kind of what the, the Israeli troll farms uh, do. Uh, and then a lot of times, you know, their PR campaigns uh, when innocent civilians are killed, they call them human shields, and you know, numerous times they call um, rockets and missiles that take out um, you know uh, civilian installments like you know hospitals and 
dwellings and whatever, apartment complexes, all that kind of stuff, a lot of times they'll blame like a faulty um, Palestinian rocket instead of saying outright that, yeah, we did it. So this is tried and true, and this is something I tweeted from uh, 2014, that the same tactics they're using right now uh, as they commit um, war crimes and crimes against humanity, the same excuses are given, you know, human shields and faulty Palestinian rockets, and it's all uh, mostly, or most of it's bogus. But uh, what's your take on what's going on right now in Gaza? First of all, Palestinians are Semites, right? So that just that just is real. That's genetically Palestinians are Semites along with Jews. So it's very hard to to factually call someone an anti-Semite for supporting Palestinian human rights. You, uh, I, I understand that's the narrative people like to use, but that's that's not actually grounded in any kind of basis of fact. You're you're not a, an anti-Semite for critiquing a state. Now, as far as the Zionists go, uh, this is an uncomfortable subject for a lot of people, but, you know, the Nazis, they were, they traveled to Palestine with the Zionists. That was, a these were people who were not necessarily opposed to the Jewish Zionist movement and aided in, in a lot of ways. And they were like, okay, cool. You want to get out of here? We'll just punish the diaspora of people who are going to stay here, right? And you guys go leave and found your own ethno state. I, yeah, I've actually heard some of this too. Uh, yeah, that the, the uh, Israel and yeah the Nazis. There were some kind of dialogue between the power centers within those two societies. That's kind of scary. I've been posting a couple of articles from the Times of Israel uh, newspaper. Basically, the a few years ago they did an expose on this rabbi who is uh, basically. He teaches um, future IDF soldiers at Yeshiva, and so he's he was basically on video saying, you know, Hitler was correct. He just chose the wrong side. Jews are genetically superior, and this guy essentially Yeshiva for for settlement activity for like before you go into the military. He's like an ROTC trainer, right? So this is like military doctrine. And that guy in 2019 that Times of Israel did an expose on is now the chief rabbi for the IDF. Yeah, this right-wing ideology and eugenics and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's the same story. They just, you know, mix some stuff around or change some change some stuff about who's the superior race, who's the enemy. I saw Netanyahu, however you say it, but he said something about we are uh, – yeah. Yeah, um, he said something about, you know, the prime minister of Israel, we are the light and they are the darkness or something like that. So, you know, yeah. us versus them mentality, some religious war that he's trying to present, which, uh, you know, I'm not buying. It's just typical right wing ideology, good guys versus bad, bad guys. And it's all it's all bogus. I've got a video on my feet of him from Insider. And basically he's given a little speech and the clip from the speech is him explaining that. You know, Hitler didn't want to kill the Jews. He wanted to displace the Jews. But a Muslim convinced him that he should build showers and just wipe them all out. Basically, this guy was like, hey, look, if you don't kill all the Jews, they'll come here and they'll displace us. And then we'll be in just as bad a shape as you are. So you should kill all the Jews. Like, that's kind of Netanyahu's take on Hitler, which is, I think, fucking pretty fucking crazy. Yeah. But I think in terms of the people who lived through the Holocaust are dead, right? So they aren't really around anymore to push back on that rhetoric or to 
like moderate it in any way or to moderate the government in any way. Yes, yeah, so, historical engineering, or you know, that's what we're seeing right now. Historical engineering, and you know, they kind of mix some. Maybe it's some of it's based in fact, but they're just mixing some dates and some faces or some ideology, um, and and basically to support their agenda. Um, I think. Um, you know, there's a little bit of truth to any propaganda. There's a hint of truth to no matter what. And uh, the minister, it was a Goebbels, uh, the minister of propaganda or the minister of information for Nazi Germany. I think the, the law of propaganda is if you repeat a lie often enough, it eventually becomes truth. So and that's kind of the, you know, the same story. In fact, I believe the Brits, uh, World War One. They were the first um, to kind of weaponize propaganda. They riled up the entire British population into um, hatred of Germans. I think they weren't even allowed to, uh, you know, play German symphonies. Wagner was was banned and all that all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, they they whipped up the population uh, of of Britain into an anti-German frenzy. So the thing about propaganda, it's very very effective, and we're seeing right now the pro-Israeli. Um, anti-Muslim, you know, propaganda. And that's one thing in the United States. Um, racism um, is usually frowned upon in the United States uh, and it's usually called out um, rightly, except for uh, anti-Muslim uh, racism, which is, um, you know, open in the United States. I mean, you can criticize Muslim people, Arab people, uh, and, you know, in, in in proper society and you know a lot of times you don't even get any blowback so it's still openly racist uh anti-muslim uh that's about the only group of people you can openly um you know disgrace in public without too much blowback right now uh in the united states and um yeah i mean i think it's it's obviously <laughs> it's obviously you know that sentiment um is allowed for you know the united states wars of controlling the oil rights in the, in the middle east which you know, uh, have created, you know, cells of terrorists, you know, because of their policies. They don't hate our freedoms, you know, people in the Middle East, uh, you know, they hate our policies the way we've been treating them since World War II, essentially. Um, you know, and, and, and Israel is basically the military outpost for the United States to control um, the world's oil supply. If we were independently, uh, you know, if we, if we were independent, energy independent and didn't need um, you know, Middle East oil, we would still try to occupy and control that region because to control the oil supply is to control the world. Um, but let's get back into your, let's get back into your historical stuff. Let's go back to 1815, the volcanic eruption, the catalyst for the political events of the next 50 years. Keep rolling on this. We're, where, uh, how long have you been researching it? And, um, you know, your sources are mainly YouTube. Are you reading books on it too? read a lot of books on it. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can research this because, for example, uh, pop, a lot of modern pop culture honestly kind of spawned from this because you had 10 years of torrential rains and you had all these uh, poets and writers which were inspired by the Renaissance to do a lot of the writing and they were locked indoors for 10 years. You know, I mean, there was no, you couldn't, there was nothing to enjoy outside as far as nature goes. There was no, so a lot of political doctrine was written at this time and including a lot of like, for example, uh, you know, um, in 1815 and 1816, uh, Britain was completely devastated, right? So you had no spring, no summer in Britain at all. And, uh, 
one of the popular characters people like to talk about in relation to Mount Tambora is uh, Lord Byron and Mary Shelley. So you had these, uh, you had this love quadrangle of uh, Lord Byron, Claire Shelley, Mary Shelley, Godwin, and Percy Shelley. And uh, these were all poets and writers, thought leaders in Britain. And they all, uh, Mary Shelley was 17 when she hooked up with Percy Shelley. And so, you know, these were aristocrats in Britain. So to kind of escape the rumors, they all fled to Lake Geneva for the summer. And they were just going to basically swim at Lake Geneva, enjoy the sunshine, and just chill out. And uh, when they got there, it was just torrential rains all season long. So after they drove each other crazy for a while, uh, Lord Byron came up with an idea to, we should just write ghost stories, right? We should write some ghost stories. And two of the big ones that came out of that was I Vampire by John Polidori, which basically has inspired all of the modern vampire fiction that we talk about today. And in particular, Anne Rice. So, because uh, I Vampire took, took the first person from the vampire's perspective. So that really inspired the entire Anne Rice series. Meanwhile, Mary Shelley, she wrote a story about Frankenstein, right? So she wrote Frankenstein at this time. And that was because in science, in air quotes, science, galvanism was big in thought at that time. So people were obsessed with the idea of could you shock a body back to life, right? So that was the that was the science of the day. And Mary Shelley took that science and uh, she imagined uh, torrential rainstorms and torrential thunderstorms that could be harnessed to bring a person back to life. And that's how she wrote Frankenstein. I think you said also mentioned a lot of famines, the potato famine. A lot of that was uh, caused by this uh, eruption. I got, a list. I got a list of terrible things that happened. Uh, for example, uh, yes, the potato famine and the typhoid uh, outbreak occurred in Ireland at this time, right? So uh, one of the things you need to take away from the eruption was a couple years after it, that really pushed Manifest Destiny in the United States so people to move westward, right? To Westward expansion. 100%. And I mean, it, not that it didn't exist beforehand, but to really kick it into overdrive, you had a climate change event which changed the climate of all of the Northern Hemisphere by 12 degrees Fahrenheit. So you don't have a summer, you don't have a spring, Everyone who's been used to riding a horse for the last 50 years, now they can't afford oats to feed their horse, right? And that was universal. That was taking place in New England. That was taking place in all over Europe. Uh, in particular, one invention that came out of this time period was the uh, dandy horse, which was patented in 1817. And the dandy horse later became the bicycle. So that was the bicycle was invented because of the Tambora eruption. Uh Napoleon lost the Battle of Waterloo because he could not, he was, to set it up for you, basically there was two armies that Napoleon had to defeat in order to remain the emperor of France. And the first army was controlled by Duke Wellington and the second army was controlled by Blücher. And Napoleon needed to basically catch Wellington and defeat him and then turn around and fight Blücher. And if he had won, defeated both of them, I mean, colonial history would have completely changed, right? The British Empire would have completely fallen in probably about a decade. Uh, but Napoleon 
The ground was soaked because of all the rainstorms, so Napoleon couldn't chase Wellington as quickly as he would have liked. Uh, Wellington was able to make it to the village of Waterloo. He was able to set up about three miles away from Waterloo, and Napoleon had to fight on ground that he would not have been able to choose himself, right? So, because he couldn't jump the army and attack them, uh, he had to fight on their terms. And in particular, his artillery, which was what he was known for, heavy cannon, French heavy cannon. Uh, his artillery just could not get ground to attack Wellington's army. And so that gave Blucher time to basically creep up on Napoleon's flank and they were able to defeat him for good. If Napoleon had remained the emperor of France, you would have seen essentially, uh, well, the, the revolutions in Spain, Greece, and Eastern Europe never would have been crushed by reactionary politics. That's one thing we already touched on. Uh, you never would have seen Russia, Prussia, and Austria move to the right because even though a lot of mainland Europe was devastated, when you get further into Eastern Europe and Russia, these, this, that area, they just didn't have sunlight. They couldn't grow food, man. So, so for hundreds it, of years, the, the most popular sport in Europe were, was slaughtering each other, basically up until 1945 when, with the atomic bomb, where they knew, you know, the next time they played their favorite game, uh, it, might be the, it might be the end of us, you know. Wasn't it something like um, a third of the German population killed in the 30 years war? But yeah, just a really, really violent, dark time, literally and figuratively, in Europe around this era. All of the good vibes from the Renaissance completely died out, basically, uh, because it only took, you know, probably about six years of failed harvests, um, the price of oats. So this was the first really big inflationary period in modern capitalism, right? So oats, the price of oats went up 100% the first year, 300% the second year, 700% the third year, and they just stayed high forever after that. And it didn't go back down until people could start growing food again. And what makes the defeat of Napoleon really unique at that time was you had mass mobilization to join militaries all over the continent. And so... Was that forced conscription or was this people volunteering? A little bit of both, I guess, right? Both. Like there was a, uh, you know, there was a, there was a, a need for people ideologically to join Napoleon's army. And there was a need for people ideologically to join the opposing armies, the Wellington army, the uh, the Prussian army, basically. So was- I'm an anarchist. There's usually two sides in the history book most of the time. But it's, well, there's often lots more. Uh, you know, there's usually one side and the side they're fighting against. But what most history books uh, don't talk about is there's usually another third of the population that doesn't want anything to do with either of those two sides. That's kind of where I fall as an anarchist. I don't want anyone to rule over me. You know, I think we can do this ourselves. I don't think I'd be joining Napoleon's army or the, or the enemy's army. You know, I just want to be left alone. Uh, I think the key thing to take away from this is that people at that time could subsist, right? So the people that didn't want to have anything to do with oh, sure, yeah. army, they could grow their own food. Yeah, this was this was before global capitalism took off with these global supply chains and these you know these long distance food chains where yeah a lot of a lot of local communities could yeah subsist and you know everyone had their role to play. This was much before you know capitalism industrialized and took over the planet and with these this, the distribution of labor and everyone's so fine tuned you know 
so yeah, it's a little bit different time period, but yeah, it really seemed to take off during this era, uh, maybe the 20 or 50 years after the eruption. Even five years after. So even, even the following year. So when Napoleon's defeated abruptly, which nobody expected, right? You had mass mobilization to join militaries, but then you had mass demobilization to leave them. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's home. They want to plant food, but nobody can grow food. Right. So that was always a big story that was never talked about too. Like world war one and world war two, you know, the demobilization and essentially, you know, the connection with fascism, the United States essentially took over the world. And there was this big time resistance movement in Europe who was very skeptical of the ruling um, world order at the time, which was associated with Nazism and fascism. Well, what did the United States do? Associated and uh, allied with uh, fascists to break up the, the working class resistance, the, to break up the resistance movements that didn't want to be ruled over by the same uh, people. But yeah, and that's what you kind of see too in South America, these um, global networks of fascists and neo-fascist states, you know, in the global South and throughout the world. Um, that would probably be the first chapter in any, um, you know, history class if we taught history in the United States is what happened after World War II. You know, the world order changed drastically. What that doesn't tell you is before and after World War II, um, the United States allied with neo-Nazis, fascists, um, you know, and, and they were up until, you know, the 1930s even um, very much associated with Hitler and especially Mussolini. I think um, FDR called Mussolini that admiral Italian gentleman. I mean, I think I think what it really got, kind of goes farther than that. Uh, I mean, I, I think what people don't really realize and because the U.S. government probably will never declassify a lot of this and tell us whatever happened. But uh, Avril Harriman, who is kind of the grandfather of Democratic Party politics, right? His wife, Pamela Harriman, she she is uh, she basically started the slide to the right in the Democratic Party in the '80s. But uh, after her husband died, but Avril Harriman worked with Prescott Bush, who was a war hero in World War One. And they formed the United Banking Corporation, and UBC was basically the offshore entity that enabled Fritz Thyssen to fund the Nazi Party. So people don't really know that, but that's a real thing. Uh, you had Prescott Bush uh, for the for the Republican Party, and Avril Harriman for the Democratic Party, and they were working together at the same banking organization. And they basically enabled Fritz Thyssen to fund the Nazi party. They gave him an offshore route for his money in case things went south, right? But also they gave him inroads to import fuel, uh, iron and steel and uh, oil and gold from America to the Nazi party. Uh, a lot of his, a lot of his son's funding. I mean, his son wrote about this in his memoir. I paid Hitler. So it's it's kind of a crazy history, and uh, you know Pamela Harriman. She wasn't even married to Avril Harriman after he kind of got caught and his assets were seized in the uh, Alien Act in the early '40s. You know, this was she was married to different people. Pamela Harriman is actually descended from Churchill, right? So she had three husbands in her life, and but on all on two of them, she cheated on them both with Avril Harriman who she could never marry because 
he was kind of tainted after having funded the Nazi party, right? And the reason Republicans and Democrats, in particular, their business arms, so the business aspect of the two parties, wanted to fund the Nazi party was they weren't really keen on Hitler's ethnic ideologies, but what they were keen on was that one of his big things. Very pro-business, very pro-business. Yes, but in particular, he promised to crush the labor unions. And Absolutely, that, no question. That made it worth it, right? So, and they brought in all their friends, J.P. Morgan. That creates a great climate for investment when the labor unions are smashed up and working class resistance is smashed up. It makes it a lot easier to invest in an exploited workforce, and that's usually when the money rolls in. Uh, what What... I'm interested in your background and stuff. You certainly sound like a uh, a student of history. Have you read a lot of history books, or do you just go down internet wormholes and YouTube wormholes? Uh, I'm fascinated. I, a lot of the stuff you've been talking about, I, I I maybe barely read about or heard about. So, and some of it not at all. So, can you tell me about how? Uh, yeah, how did you amass this? vast uh, knowledge base that's certainly not um, contemporary history. This stuff is not taught in, in my education, certainly, and I'm sure not yours either in Tennessee. Uh, okay, I just really like hidden things. I just really appreciate finding, you know, I don't know, I like digging up hidden things. I just always have, and uh, I think the history of both so I, I like Chomsky, Noam Chomsky, and Howard Zinn. I mean, do you have any books you could recommend? Or are you more, again, into just kind of these internet searches or YouTube videos, documentaries, that kind of stuff? Log off. I'll give you titles and authors to read. Uh, particularly if you're interested in American history, there was a uh, coup in 1933, which failed. Uh, you probably know a little bit about that. Smedley Butler, right? But uh, the guys behind the coup... That was Avril Harriman and Prescott Bush's friends, right? J.P. Morgan, the DuPonts, Merck, right? So a this lot is of old money. Some of these, some of these family, uh, you know, fortunes are still around today, and they still uh, have vast amounts of power and privilege in our even modern society. They were terrified that FDR's policies would basically bankrupt their industries, or that they their industries would be nationalized, so their profit centers would be completely taken away. So uh, they basically used uh, the a lot of I can't I can't remember all the names of the organizations, but you know if you've heard of like the Sons and Daughters of Liberty and all that shit, all the '30s versions of that this coup kind of brewed in you know these little back rooms, and it was all financed by these really rich guys, and they decided they needed a war hero to do it all. But in particular, they wanted a war hero with experience uh, working for the U.S. government doing these types of coups in other countries. And Smedley Butler was – that's all he did for his entire career. And uh, essentially when he came back to the U.S. to stay for good, he was extremely disillusioned. And he was beloved of all the American troops who had to go and – you know, create a banana republic here and a banana republic there. Uh, he was extremely disillusioned having been with these men for, you know, more than a decade. And so he was extremely well loved by them. And basically these titans of industry thought that if they could get Smedley Butler, they could get all these troops. And they the robber barons, the, not the titans of industry, the robber barons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
for lack of a better word, that's what they were. They were definitely robber barons. Some of them were had a very cop, under, good understanding of economics, though. Like, for example, Henry Ford, for all of his faults, he understood that you needed to pay your workers an ex, uh, pretty well, or they wouldn't be able to afford the fucking cars. Who's going to buy my cars if workers aren't being paid well, right? So, but you had a lot of those guys who just didn't understand or didn't care because a newspaper was 30 cents or you had to buy heating oil regardless of what the cost was, right? So, uh, I think some of them understood innately that you couldn't really tread on the working class too heavily, but they they were kind of the minority, you know, of the groups. So, that was a big thing with the uh, failed American coup was that uh, they wanted the labor unions crushed once and for all, right? They wanted people too scared to ever think about unionizing their labor again. And In the United States up until today, the modern United States, uh, we continue to overthrow governments that, you know, we don't like. The ruling class, I don't say we, the ruling class doesn't like, you know, those slightly left-leaning governments, you know, especially in the global south that are easier to overthrow than, you know, obviously more established and richer countries like those in, you know, whatever, Europe. But um, you said something about, uh, I think you tweeted me or sent me as we were kind of discussing prior to this podcast, the workforce crisis. What's that all about? Okay, so, uh, you know, there was a, uh, okay, so FDR's policies basically formed the middle class. And they formed the middle class for the silent generation to have kids. So the silent generation, you know, you could you could go to work and pump gas every day and pay for a house and pay for your entire family and, you know, you didn't have to worry about your retirement or your future. Yeah, at one, at one time there was an American dream, you know, where you're, the next generation was going to be better than the last. You can go to college, you can take a vacation, you can retire. But that's all gone now. That's all been lost. Uh, I think – I hate to blame it on any generation. I'm not an ageist at all. But uh, essentially, after the silent generation – not any generation, though, the people that were in power during that generation. You know what I mean? It wasn't everyone. It was just, the you know, it, it typically is the 1%, you know, the, the most wealthy and powerful people within a generation. Not everyone, you know, but maybe 1% of them, you know? Oh, the bureaucratic, the bureaucratic class in America is for sale. And at this time, people were just so happy FDR was dead. Uh, they bought all the politicians. And they, you know, for one thing, they changed it where... Nobody could run for more than two terms, so you could there, There's always a class war in the United States, and usually, you know, the rich and powerful, they win it. It's usually one-sided. But every so often, like what happened, um, you know, with the labor movements and FDR and the New Deal and all that kind of stuff, sometimes the, the, the labor and the, the proletariat, you know, the middle class and the poor, sometimes they win some, um, you know, victories here and there, and they fight back. And uh, I think Mark Twain had this comment. Uh, when, the, when the rich and powerful rob us, they call it business, you know, and when the poor and working class fight back, they call that violence. Uh, yeah, terrorism. Right. Domestic terrorism, whatever you want to call it. Uh, That's uh, I think. uh, I think what really irritates me about the Democratic Party is they do not mind for the rich to rob you, but they want to make sure you don't have guns so that you could never really overthrow them. You know, what do you think about what do you think about guns? I think that's a 
I'm still trying to find out where I stand on it. Like, I, I oppose violence. I think we are a, we have just an insane gun culture here in the United States. So much gun violence. Um, so I'm kind of torn on, on guns. I mean, I don't trust the government. Um, I also think if there's going to be a violent revolution, the ruling class is going to win it. You know, what we have to do is have hopefully a peaceful bottom up revolution. And uh, once enough of us, um, you know, take power, the only violence will be when the, when the, um, you know, the ruling class doesn't want to go out quietly, you know, but if we want to violently overthrow the government, I think we're in a rude awakening. So I'm kind of torn on guns. I mean, although like the constitution, for example, is not important to me. I don't care about the first amendment, second amendment, fifth amendment. I don't even know how many amendments there are, you know? So I kind of like, I kind of think for myself critically, I don't really need some piece of paper to tell me what's important or not. So I'm kind of, again, torn on guns. I mean, we have a gun culture, mass murders all the time. Uh, where do you stand on guns? Do you think it's an issue? And, I mean, do you think a violent revolution is going to turn out well for the proletariat, for the working class? Because, uh, you know, they got guns and tanks and atomic bombs. I say, you know, that essentially the ruling class, right? So uh, if, we're, if we're trying to overthrow any government uh, with those types of weaponry, I think it's going to be pretty violent and bloody, and I don't think it's going to turn out too well. Well, I'll touch on the workforce crisis because I think it has some bearing on that. But, okay, so where I stand on guns is... I'm not a big fan of right-wing gun culture, but uh, I do believe in a well-armed proletariat, right? I don't think you should uh, – I mean, we're already kind of crushed under the boot, so I don't think you should be allow guns to be outlawed, bottom line. Uh, now, I think if you live a comfortable suburban life and you have a wine cave and, you know, and you're, you're very comfortable in the society that we live in, course you're probably radically opposed to gun culture because school shootings are like absolutely the worst thing and they are it's it is terrible for someone to go into a school and just stalk from room to room and kill little kids a hundred percent uh i don't i think if people's material conditions were improved in their everyday life that wouldn't be a thing that people consider doing yeah i think poverty is the seed of revolution so i think poverty inequality homelessness, desperation, that usually breeds violence and revolution. So I think if you improve the living standards of the masses, I think you'd have a whole lot less violence out there, especially gun violence. Well, so the workforce crisis that we talked about earlier, uh, you asked me to explain it a little more. And I'll, I think maybe after I do, you'll, you'll have a different take on re- revolution in the United States, or at least uh, a collapse of the bureaucratic class or a revolt against the bureaucratic class. So um, so the boomer generation was really big, really big compared to every generation that came after them. And uh, when you look at generations broken up by age bracket, it looks like a pyramid, right? So you have each generation after the boomers. Um, it used to be a pyramid where the top was bigger than the bottom, right? But now what we have is a big fat bracket in the middle and then a reverse of that pyramid. So uh, now the age aging bracket, population, essentially, right? You go back far enough, what you should see is a pyramid. But once the boomer generation was born, the population pyramid started to look like a diamond. So you had the boomers in the center as a big fat middle piece and then every generation that came after them began to shrink. So you have problems now 
with neoliberalism because one of the main tenets of neoliberalism is you got to work until you die. You can't retire. You must work till you die. They're even, yep. They even wheeled Diane Feinstein to the time clock until she fell over dead. Right. So doesn't matter who you are. Everybody has to exemplify that. And I think one of the so you had Joe Biden a couple of years ago. Remember a couple of years ago, no one wants to work anymore, right? I'm sure you remember that. No one wants to yeah, work anymore. Of course. Well, uh, two years later, everybody's kind of forgotten about that. And Joe Biden has the lowest unemployment of any president and most consecutive months of low unemployment of any president. And the reason is because in 2020, uh, 29 million boomers retired. And then by 2022, after two years of inflation, 25 million of them came back to the workforce because they realized oh, shit, I can't retire. That's not a real thing anymore. So, and I think that was the biggest shock to them as it was to anybody. You know, it was it was a labor markets game. And in uh, Yeah, inflation's out of control right now. And, you know, Social Security, uh, you know, doesn't really even keep up with uh, inflation. And, um, yeah, I mean, some people in the, the, the dwindling safety nets and the eroding welfare state, um, yeah, you're pretty much on your own. And, uh, you know, the, basically all those New Deal measures, they're, they've been trying to dismantle them, the right and the left, uh, since essentially they were put into place with the New Deal. So, yeah, it's not looking good. Uh, and I think it's just sickening and sad, you know, the aging population, people having to work into their 70s and 80s. It's just, uh, it's not right. Here's the breaking point, right? You had a lot of late 50s, early 60-year-olds who just called out, just, just, fell out of the workforce in 2020. They just decided to retire early or they were downsized and they retired early or what have you. And then they had to come back to the workforce two years later. So they basically overflowed the workforce. So in 2021, there were 10.9 million job openings. Today, there's only a few million job openings. Well, so what that means for the economy is the economy needs to grow by at least 2.3 million jobs a year. And the reason I say that is because the population is growing by 2.3 million people per year. So you have 17-year-olds, 2.3 million 17-year-olds turning 18. At the same time, they need to have an equal number of jobs in the economy because no one can retire, so no one can leave their job, right? So so essentially, you need to have all these people retiring. And what we have seen from the census is, and the uh, Bureau of Labor's, job projections for the next 10 years is that we're projected to grow between 2022 and 2032 by only 4.7 million jobs. So that only handles two years of people maturing into the workforce, and then there won't be jobs for anyone. Yeah, and plus there's automation, essentially robots putting us out of business, which is one of the reasons that I support universal basic income. Uh, I also support paying people a living wage. I don't think anyone should have to work multiple jobs just for the subsistence to get by. It's ridiculous. One job is more than enough, so we're an army of wage slaves. Okay, so uh, I think where I first got my became really interested in developing my thoughts on class consciousness was uh, – yeah, I became an electrician, and one of the things that I specialized in was automation and controls, and in particular, industrial automation. And the first really big job I had, I was, like, super proud of finishing it, right? It was a about a $60 million job. I felt a big sense of accomplishment when I finished it, and I had been kind of living on this job for about three years. So um, people that work at the place I was automating, you know, I'm... I'm meeting up with them, hanging out with them. I 
sat down and eaten with their families. And when it's all over with, and I go back for some routine maintenance, I realize like, oh, you put them out of work. Put them out of work. None of them have a job. And here's uh, the thing about automation, technology, computers. Uh, we, uh, the public, I say, as we, 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 um, you know, public dollars funded the innovation, research, and development for the internet, computers, automation for decades. Uh, and then once they were finally um, profitable, and once you know we could sell them off or give them away to people like Steve Jobs uh, and and Bill Gates. Um, you know, essentially, you know, the public lost control of it. And essentially, all these tax dollars and decades of funding these technologies, we just gave them away to the billionaire class so that they can use these technologies to put us out of work, you know. And with a, um, with a welfare state and with safety nets being eroded in society, you know, it's going to get ugly. You know, We're, we don't have an adequate social security. Uh, we don't have adequate, um, unemployment insurance. It's a fraction of what you make. Um, you know, we don't, we don't have retirement. Uh, we used to have pensions, you know, but that was all replaced. Now we have these 401ks, uh, replaced with the volatile stock market and, um, you know, these things that go up and down, uh, the stock market is essentially herd behavior. Uh, it's lost all fundamentals. Uh, we have a fiat, <laughs> we have a fiat currency. Um, you know, it's just, it's just a, a giveaway essentially to wall street. So, uh, and before, um, the global financial system was deregulated first by Nixon and, uh, accelerated by Reagan, you know, it was called the global, um, gold or golden era, I should say of capitalism. There were no, um, there were no booms and busts and recessions and depressions, you know, it was maybe like 20 or so years of, you know, pretty stable, uh, economics. Uh, but ever since it was, um, deregulated and the financial system and the Bretton Woods banking system was dismantled. Now, every seven years, you know, we have another recession and the next is always worse than the last. And it's just one boom and bust and bubble after the next. Uh, okay, so to talk about uh, the finance system and uh, Wall Street and particularly money, uh, you know, we after World War II, we basically opened up the globe to what we call the free trade system. And what we told every country was, uh, you know, if you uh, if you agree to do your trades in dollars, right? If you agree to use the dollar to perform your trades with other countries, we'll backstop all the trading that you want to do. Will enable you to export whatever it is you make here and import whatever it is you want to import or whatever you need, as long as you agree to perform the trade in dollars. And people were really into that, right? And we had a big navy, and we were basically the only continent that wasn't completely ravaged by World War II. So that was agreeable to a lot of countries, and we did uplift a lot of countries with that. But now we don't have the Navy for that anymore. And even if we did, no one really needs it. So when we talk about the dollar, uh, you know, okay, so Bretton Woods, right? Um, one of the things that was a fundamental property of the free trade system was everybody stored their gold in the United States. You store your gold here, you do all your trades in dollars. We got your back on whatever you need. 
And then, but these free trade agreements, though, they're called agreements. They're not. They're usually, you know, rubber stamped by Congress and uh, essentially made by secret board and committee members and all that kind of stuff. And they're called, again, you know, free trade again, agreements like NAFTA. But what essentially they are are investor rights agreements, giving, you know, the rights to investors and giving the rights to capital, uh, not certainly not giving the rights to people or workers. So it's basically it's called free trade. It's called globalization but it's a very specific form of globalization um which is you know essentially run by these private tyrannies otherwise known as corporations and the people the stakeholders you know the the people that um you know the shareholders that own these corporations which are essentially the one percent of the population um you know maybe the top 10 percent own like what 90 percent of the stocks or something like that so for the majority of the population the stock market is a spectator sport but yeah again what's called um globalization is basically just corporate you know neoliberal capitalism you know and what's called free trade is basically just investor rights agreements made in secret undemocratic and rubber stamped by parliaments true but in the beginning it actually was a functioning system everyone stored their gold here and we backstopped all this trade all over the globe and we brought a lot of countries into the global economy yeah this is this is the area you're talking about is the golden era of capitalism the post-war period until the what 1970s uh, what changed was we spent all that gold and didn't tell anybody to fund Vietnam. That's that's where the whole thing fell apart. Was that's right. That's when they that's when they decided to uh, deregulate the financial system and no longer and get off the gold standard because we were wasting so much money destroying Vietnam. It became too expensive, so we had to do something. Uh, I mean, we as like you know the people in power, Nixon. We didn't just spend our gold. We spent every country's gold. Yeah, because there was a there's a run on gold. Like uh, countries, what? I guess France and other countries in Europe were like, "Hey, you know, we don't want these meaningless dollars back. We want gold." And all of a sudden, we we're like, "We don't have enough," you know. French sent a warship to New York Harbor, sent a destroyer to New York Harbor, demanding their gold back. That's when that was the moment before Nixon deregulated deregulated the finance system, basically deregulated. Wow. Uh, so that's not too much talk in history, is it? Say what? That's not oftenly. That's not very often talked in history classes in the United States, is it? You're never going to hear about the French demanding their gold back, or they were going to start bombarding New York City. But that was a real thing that happened, uh, and it wasn't going to be like they were going to be able to do a lot of damage. But PR wise, that was going to devastate us, and uh, so we quietly gave the French their gold back, or what we had, anyways, and we promised them a system where Europe and the United States could still manage to be on top, right? So with the deregulated dollar, with, uh, you know, going off the gold standard. And um, I think what really, so the way you can think of BRICS, you know, BRICS, right? The way you can think of BRICS is essentially they've created their own free trade system and they're just going to completely shortcut around us. And so they've all begun to get out of the dollar. So all of their foreign you know, all of their foreign reserves that they hold for dollars because you need to buy oil in dollars. You need to perform all your transactions in dollars. So there's a lot of foreign investment in the dollar, and that's all in bonds. And I don't know if you know this or not, but the bond market is going through the largest crash in history right now. So even as Janet Yellen says that the economy's never been better, we can afford two wars, 
the bond market, I believe, over the last three years is down 49%, wow. which is equal to the stock market crash and the dot-com crash, right? So a major, major crash in the dollar. Isn't it sad, though, that the people in power always can say, yeah, we can probably uh, afford one war, two wars, five wars, but we can never afford to send kids to college. We can never afford to shelter the homeless or provide food for those that are hungry and vulnerable. Isn't that a shame? Well, not only is it a shame, but this is where the rubber meets the road because I know you probably heard about this a few months ago. Moody's downgraded our credit system, downgraded our credit rating from AAA to AA. And basically, even though that doesn't really mean a lot, when Moody's was pressed on this, they were like, look, look at the erosion of governance in the United States. You guys have completely lost your ability to govern. But I think that means we're going to pay a crap ton of interest too, right? Way more interest than we usually pay. So all this money is essentially, you know, the, the deficit and the, the debt has to get bigger and bigger each year just so we can pay down the interest from the last time we borrowed. The government budget will have to shrink in the next 10 years. That's that's absolutely a thing that's going to happen. Now, it would be a way to use that as a weapon against social spending. The military industrial complex won't shrink or the police state or the prison industrial complex. Those things won't shrink. But the budgets for public education, that's going to be probably privatized transportation. We've already seen in the infrastructure bill. It's basically a giveaway to corporations. You know, Um, it's not a public works project. It's a giveaway to, you know. These, these crooked um, construction companies uh, and, and, you know, healthcare, we don't have a functioning healthcare system. So certainly the budget for that, uh, I would see is probably going to be even more of a giveaway to private insurance companies to rob us blind. So yeah, it's here. What's the good news? <laughs> well, I think they will try. The good news that I would give you is when you go back to the workforce crisis, I think the workforce crisis that I was talking about between 2022 and 2032 and the, Basically, the BRIC system, the alternate free trade system, which is isolating us from the rest of the global economy, those two things are going to meet in a collision in the mid-2020s. And what we're going to have is you would need, in order to shrink the government budgets, you would need to increase the carrying capacity of the private sector. So you would need a lot of job growth. And the Bureau of Labor Statistics is has calculated out for the next 10 years, we're going to grow by 4.7 million jobs, I told you. Right, so that's not enough jobs. I, I don't know where the where they think the money's going to come from to fund anything. The military budget, Social Security. I don't. They're. I don't know how the government is not going to collapse. Honestly, financially, from a mathematics standpoint, not not in control of the free trade system, having losing control of the petrodollar, lo, uh, basically losing the upper hand on all of our import export business. I don't know where the money's going to come from to fund the U.S. government. I, I, I can't imagine. And what I do know is that there will be about 20 million people on the street with no job in a country heavily influenced by gun culture. Sound good. I, I mean, I can't imagine anything worse, honestly, in terms of anything could happen. Anything could happen. Let's end on a positive note. We, we talked about a lot of stuff here tonight. I had a fascinating talk. we got to do it again sometime. What gives you hope? What keeps you going in this world? I'm very, um, I'm very pleased with all the 
working class resistance and organization and unions, that's really taking off. I think people are really starting to wake up. Climate change, uh, you know, the politicians are being forced to act and address it. So I do see some positive change, some good things happening. It's always an uphill battle against concentrated wealth and power. So what gives you hope? What gives you optimism for the future? Or don't you have any? <laughs> I think... I'm trying to think of one really good thing that could happen for the United States. Uh, okay, so with the workforce crisis from 2022 to 2032, I think we could really see a we could really see our government remodeled in the next ten years because Hopefully I think a democratic one. I, I I mean I think the the two neoliberal parties I I, I think they're done I, I I don't think unless they are able to completely control us in a police state I, I think they're done I don't well, that's what I don't, you see from Joe Biden he wants to he doesn't want to defund the police he wants to fund them fund them fund them I quote him there uh yeah a hundred percent like you know uh, I live near Cop City if you didn't know that I live about an hour from Cop City so that's what's a big, going on there can you tell us. Uh, you have Democrats acting like Republicans when it comes to protesters, basically. Both parties are authoritarian. I mean, I know Democrats, the rhetoric is a little bit different, but both parties are very pro-authoritarian and pro-censorship. Do you know who Andy Ngo is? Uh, the name sounds familiar. Uh, he's kind of a provocateur. He's more uh, known. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a provocateur. Okay, right. So, um, the DHS, Depart- uh, Department of Homeland Security. Uh, basically plagiarized Andy Ngo's blog when they wrote their press briefings for, and I'm not, I'm not making this up. It was literally word for word plagiarism from his blog to the official department of Homeland security website concerning the arrest and charging of all of the cop city protesters with domestic terrorism. So you got, you got a guy who I think he was just handing out flyers. He's now a domestic terrorist. Yeah, that, they use that. They weaponize the word terrorism. Terrorism, I talked about it last night with Pat TDS. Terrorism is essentially, um, you know, by our own definition, terrorists, uh, for those in power, are people that commit violent acts or even acts that we don't like, and we call them criminal, we call them terrorists. Uh, and anti-terrorism is anything we do in response to them, any violence in response to them. But yeah, that's completely ridiculous. Domestic terrorists. Terrorists is just a weaponized, propagandized term. It's completely meaningless the way it's used. It's just thrown out there. It's essentially used to, um, you know, to defame your political opponent. You know, the FBI is essentially the political police, and that's what they use, these bogus charges like, you know, domestic terrorists, which is, again, absolutely absurd. We should not have a terrorist list. There should not be a list that's kept by the executive that they can arbitrarily add people to. They don't need any charges. Um, you can be on this list, and there's no way to get off it. Um, it's it's just absurd. Uh, I can't stand. So once the Soviet Union fell, that's essentially the um, the boogeyman now. It's Everything is a, a war on terror. Every, everything is against terrorists. But what we don't hear is the United States is a terrorist state, a lead terrorist state, a rogue nation that doesn't abide by international law, that commits terrorist acts all over the world to carry out their political agenda and their economic agenda. And again, by the definition of people in power here in this country, that's what they are. You know, By their own definition, they're a leading terrorist state. So yeah, I can't stand the terrorist talk and the terrorist and anyone that protests or says something against um, wealth and power is labeled a terrorist, and it just it really it really grinds my gears. 
I don't think that. I, I would say 1 of the things I have hope for as far as uh, the future of the United States is, uh, you know, I really think. The alternate free trade system of BRICS will. Force the United States to start playing more by the world rest of the world's rules. What do you think about cryptocurrency? I'm not a fan, honestly. It's it's usually owned by the same group of people that own all the other wealth. It's just like a small fraction of rich people that you know invest in it, and you know they're usually the ones that uh, you know get the gains. It's not. It's certainly not a way to a egalitarian spread of wealth. It's it's not an egalitarian you know system by any means. But it's interesting to me. I do like. As an anarchist, I do like things that are decentralized. I just don't trust crypto. It's very crooked and dirty and yuck. Just It does not appeal to me either. I think there is some appeal ideologically to it. Same, ideologically, but not, not the stuff that I see. Like, not this junk. This system is junk and it's destined to fail. You do seek alternatives. But I think the thing that people in crypto made the desperate mistake of was as soon as wall street was interested in bringing their money in they immediately jumped for that money well i mean you're how 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 are you (laughs) okay you tried to defeat the power structure by inviting all the people from the power structure you don't like right into the game with you so let's do do some funny questions here just to end with is that cool yeah we've been going and riffing and about a lot of serious stuff let's just end with some random stuff and uh we'll finish up for the night who killed JFK? 100% the CIA. Okay. You Are we talking? alone in the universe? Have aliens uh, been here? Uh, I think, I don't think we're alone in the universe in terms of just living organisms, but uh, I think we may be the only sentient thing alive. You know, you, uh, okay, so, the galaxy or the universe is a distance measurement, but there's also a time measurement involved too, right? It's billions of years old. So space time. I think in terms of close to us in our time period, I think we're the only thing we'll ever see. We're the only we're the only uh, smart being that we'll ever come across. You don't believe that stuff that was going on in the Mexican Congress was that uh, bodies from Peru or something like that? Those alien bodies that were autopsied. You don't believe in that stuff? Debunked, wasn't it? Pretty sure the bodies were already debunked. Uh, I don't know. I read some conflicting reports. Do you think we ever been visited in, on Earth by uh, you know a life form that did not originate here? By something smart that flew here? Uh, yeah. Okay. No, I don't. And uh, I think. What we've noticed is, and I brought this up in a tweet uh, earlier, sometime last week, was, uh, you know, all those UFO hearings and all the UFO news immediately died as soon as there was a new war, to, as soon as there was a new conflict to latch on to. Yep. You have no hearings now. You have no, uh, but during the hearings that lasted for about three months, you had East Palestine get completely nuked. You had the Ukraine war turn against NATO, basically, and now that they've all but lost that. A lot of pushback in Europe. The Europeans are not happy with that war in Ukraine. It's basically a, a, a war pushed. The Polish have completely, I mean, Poland has completely, have completely flipped their position. And Germany has a third party, a new party, which basically, uh, I think she, I think the lady who formed it, formed it yesterday. And basically it was a, in the sanctions on Russia, Pursue business interests with Russia. Yeah, they have to be reintegrated into the global economic system. There's not going to be a world without Russia. 
they're an export economy, so they make a lot of stuff, but they don't have a lot of resources. So what the hell are they supposed to do? Rely on Uncle Sam to provide them with everything they need to keep their economy going? No, that's not reasonable. So, uh, yeah, she just formed that party yesterday. Uh, someone was lamenting that it's going to be a center right or maybe center party, and that's probably not untrue. But you need to pers- you've got to be able to get along with your neighbors. Yeah, and definitely. I think that's where my, a lot of my like, as far as being a communist goes, I'm more internationalism. I'm all about internationalism, a system where we all just get along. And again, I hope these borders and these arbitrary governments just dissolve in the long term view. If you can't get along with people in your community. If you can't share with people in your community, how are you ever going to be able to interact with other nations positively? Like, do you think dinosaurs had feathers? I think dinosaurs had feathers. Yeah, me too. Uh, I think. Oh, you, I, th- I think I saw this. the uh, The new speaker of the house, the Republican. I guess he doesn't. He's a creationist. He doesn't believe in. Uh, doesn't believe in dinosaurs. They're all fake news. I guess right. Uh, you know, I'm sure if I was to go to church Sunday, I'd have to hear about what an amazing man this guy is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I live in a place where I'm sure he's, I haven't actually dipped my toe in the water yet, seen what people think, but I'm pretty sure they all, you know, a lot of people positively agree, but most people don't care. Most people are just trying to get by day to day right now. So most of the people I know just don't care. You, uh, how, how old do you think it's possible for a human being to live with the, the most advanced technology? you think a human being could ever live to be maybe 200 years old? I think about this question sometimes. I believe science has already kind of determined that the kids who will live to be 120 have already been born. So there's, there's ha- There have been people, I think the oldest person was 120, 127 or something like that. I mean, I don't know. And that, we're talking Gen Z. you got yeah. kids Z that'll live. I think their lifespan will reach if... If society- well, I don't know about this. Yeah, society and this climate stuff. I, I don't know. That might that might have a big play, a big factor. Everything keeps going the way it is, right? Yeah, uh, life expectancy in the United States is actually going down, which is absurd, especially for a country with think- uh, an enormous amount of resources and advantages and privileges we have. It's, I think the one reason is because we don't have a functioning healthcare system, but uh, the food we eat, all kinds of reasons for it. But yeah. It's not looking good. There's so many opportunities that I see in the United States, so many opportunities for improvement, and uh, that's why I consider myself a revolutionary. Do you think revolution is possible without violence, or do you think it's going to be a violent thing? Uh, I think other countries are really worried about revolution in the United States, and I think they're worried about a right-wing revolution. They would step in. Well, I, th- I think they already are stepping in. I think that's what BRICS is. I believe they... They don't want the global superpower to have a right-wing revolution and be in charge of the global free trade system. So I think they're that, more frightened of a left-wing revolution myself, but that's just me. I think... I can't discount the possibility of it in the United States because, like I told you, with the workforce crisis, by 2032, there's going to be an army of 20 million people on the streets in a country that's enamored with gun culture. And those people are going to, dis- are going to be disgusted by elites, right, and completely disillusioned with capitalism altogether. So I have some, I have some hope, but I, I think anybody who thinks that the elites are not going to try to build a domestic army and fight it out are crazy. Right? You, you had some controversial opinions today. 
you know, at least for some people, some hot takes, especially with this uh, Mount Tambora uh, volcano. You have any more uh, controversial opinions or any hot takes to end with uh, end on today? Anything else you want to bring up before we sign off here? Uh, what's a hot take? What's a good hot take? <laughs> um, Putting you on the spot. I'm just trying to think of something juicy. You obviously you want something juicy. Give me something juicy. Okay. Uh, the moon landing was staged. No, I'm kidding. I, I don't think it was. I think. If we could move industry into the solar system, I think, I think we could potentially have pockets on the planet that would be workers utopias i dig it i left-wing interstellar utopia i'm in well i think i don't think the left would be interested in space exploration or but i think in terms of like when you see all of the big movement by elites to do luxury travel in space i think that just yeah i think it's a bad thing i think there's way too much emphasis and nonsense and star wars and uh, militarization of space and the billionaire space race i think we should focus on at least now and maybe the next hundred or so years on saving this planet from the climate crisis and transforming it into a a worker's utopia here screw all the space nonsense stuff but sure in the next thousand years or something like that I'm, i'm all for it but not in this lifetime or the lifetime of you know the next couple of generations, at least I don't think it should be a big emphasis. But, uh, the right to squander all their resources trying to get to space and trying to get established in space. I would really appreciate it if they did. And I think that would potentially open up pockets of communitarian people, pockets of the earth where people are really excited about communitarianism and collectivism and taking making do with what we have and what we have is, you know, we do have, even even now, even with everything happening, there is more than enough resources here for everybody that's here currently. And I think, I think if the ride exhausted itself on space whims and fucking space serendipity, that would be a really good thing in terms of burning out a lot of their energy. And maybe we could, maybe, maybe we could combat them much better in terms of politics, uh, I think, you know, definitely the media is undergoing a transformation. The legacy media is definitely dying. Independent media is kind of... Independent coming. media, baby. Necessary I, illusions is blowing up. I think that's where it, I think that's where the future is. I think regular people will have to kind of take control of the new media and make sure that we dominate that. That's, and, what, that's what I was thinking. I was like waiting for someone to come along and put some views that I think are important and get them out there. And I'm like, you know what? Why don't you just do it? You know? So I think a lot of people need to start just putting their views out there and getting these independent media news stories out there, getting a different perspective in. Nobody's watching Fox News, or I guess a lot of people still are, but nobody's watching this MSNBC, CNN, but they shouldn't be. You know, there's so much crap on the airwaves and on the Internet. Uh, independent media, that's what it's all about. I, I pretty much get my news from Reddit and Twitter, and I try to follow leftists and people that think like-minded uh, and think like me. So I think a lot of people are starting to wake up. Uh, it's slow, but it's happening. Um, how do I say it? Deus Ex Moniker? You got it. Okay, so Chris in Tennessee, Deus Ex 
moniker. Uh, the stage is yours. If you want to talk about anything, if you want to plug anything, if people want to get in touch with you, where can they find you? The stage is yours. Go ahead. Okay. You can find me at Deus Ex Moniker on Twitter. And uh, I think to go back to what we originally talked about in terms of uh, Tambora and the way the planet completely changed, uh, we're going to experience another climate change event. We already are kind of in the midst of it. And I, you know, there were some good things that came out of the Tambora eruption, like after all the cholera plague swept the globe for 35 years, we had the sanitation revolution. People didn't even understand washing their hands before all this happened. And then now we've developed sewer systems. We developed, you know, people don't piss in the water supply. Uh, surgeons wash their hands. And even though that seems like a simple change, it really did increase the carrying capacity of the human race in terms of how long we could live, how much more productive your life could be for yourself. And, you know, for, you know, there was no retirement back in the day. If you, you created a big family and then the family took care of you until you died. And I, I think if you want to be hopeful, climate change could give us some potentially new groundbreaking things that we, you know, I don't think anybody ever thought of germ theory before the Tambora eruption just completely discombobulated the global climate. And so I'm hoping that we'll get some good stuff come out of it. You know, that was the first seeds of public transportation too, the bicycle public transportation, all that sprung from not being able to afford a horse. Uh, so I'm hoping when you can't afford a car, you know, we'll have thought leaders who come up with some new and exciting ways to get around and do things. And I just, it's the chaos that came from Tambora did, did bring some positive effects. And so I'm hoping that the chaos that comes from climate change will probably hopefully bring some you know, hopefully we'll profit from the serendipity that comes from that, too. I dig it, my friend. We'll have to catch up again sometime. I liked your takes, and I liked your perspective. I liked learning from you tonight. Thanks for the conversation. Uh, stay in touch, and have a good night. All right. Thanks, MC. See ya. Thank you for listening to Necessary Illusions. Also want to thank my special guest, Chris in Tennessee, a.k.a. Deus Ex Moniker. I enjoyed his perspective on history, current events, and the significance of the 1815 Mount Tambora volcanic eruption. Again, I am your host, MC Squared. No gods, no masters. I'm out.
Thank you.